This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show, and we welcome back to our show the Sheriff of Hampshire County, Pat Kaling. There is a contest for the Democratic primary for sheriff. The primary is on September 6th. Uh, the Secretary of State has sent out requests or invitations for ballots for uh, absentee voting or for mail-in voting, more accurately. Uh, the contest is a, between uh, Sheriff Kaling, is the incumbent, Caitlin uh, Cepeda, and Yvonne Gittleson. They are his uh, opponents for the Democratic nomination for Sheriff of Hampshire County. Sheriff, thank you so much for being with us today. I'd like to begin by asking you kind of a slightly revised question that I asked your two opponents as they've been on the show, which is, why do you want this job? Well, Or why do you want to continue with I, this I job? I want to continue <laughs> with this job uh, because, uh, unfortunately, uh, when I started six years ago, uh, we, had, we had plans for continuing to move uh, corrections uh, into the community, and uh, we didn't uh, get that opportunity once COVID hit, and so now we're rebuilding those pieces to um, continue that move because uh, as corrections change, as the criminal justice system change, we're going to uh, be in circumstances where more and more uh, individuals are, are being treated in the community under the correctional system. Well, tell us more about that because... What I have been struck with is the reduction in the number of people who are held at the Hampshire County Jail. We should back up and just for our listeners who don't know, Sheriff is a, just the oddest name for this job. Um, uh, we have no one with a 10-gallon hat on a horse in Hampshire County. Well, he does but, have a cool badge embroidered yeah. on his shirt, though, which is the other question I've asked the other candidates. Are you going to get a badge? Yes. Well, <laughs> Pat Kaling has the badge. That's true. Uh, so... The sheriff is the person who runs the jail and the House of Correction. Uh, the House of Correction is where s persons who are serving time are, are held. The jail is where people who are held pre-trial are, uh, in, in, uh, are detained. Uh, there are other aspects of the sheriff's job, which we can hear about. But that is, for me, the most important, um, and I think for you, too, and for the, your opponents. Uh, so tell us more about the reduction in the number of people, because it's rather dramatic. Yes, it's very dramatic. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, we have reduced the population to uh, 120 as of this morning. Uh, what ends up happening, what happened is... And that's a reduction from what? Uh, usually between 260 and 280. Um, and so uh, what has happened is... Uh, Everything came together uh, during COVID. Uh, we we have worked traditionally with the district attorney's office, with the courts, uh, with the drug court, uh, in trying to get people out of the system through uh, safe channels back into the community. And so that was that was moved faster during COVID. And so what we ended up with uh, was a set of circumstances where. Uh, the population has been reduced to this this point. As for the people who are held in the jail in the House of Correction, as I understand it, the majority of them actually are pretrial detainees, not people who are s sentenced to time. Is that right? That's correct, and and that group is is way obviously waiting trial, and or they may even be um, held in the regional police lockup, which is part of our complex as well. 
Okay, so break down for us. If you said there were 120 people who were uh, held in the jail this morning, uh, yeah. tell us. Can you tell us uh, uh, how that breaks down in terms of pretrial? People who are held on bail, people who are serving time, and then there are some who are in uh, other status, I guess, which is kind of pre-release status. Or so yes, tell us about the, that. Uh, to work a, to work at uh, moving inside from uh, outside. Uh, Outside being the regional police lockup, uh, we we house anywhere up. We can house up to 24 individuals in the police lockup, depending on what's happening across the, the county, and with the state police that uh, make those uh, arrests. Those so, are recent arrests. Those are recent arrests. They may have happened last night, and they would they would go to court this morning, or they would have a Zoom hearing, depending on on circumstances. Then, then you move into a pretrial population, and that uh, that's approximately fifty percent of, of where where we are today. Uh, it varies it varies week to week because uh, people are released, people are bailed out, uh, people go back to court, and the court decides to put them on an electronic monitor or home confinement. So all of those pieces come into play with the pretrial population. So that that population varies, but it, it uh, for the most part. Uh, during COVID, uh, the sentence population, we were, we were able to work with the district attorney's office and the defense attorneys to reduce that sentence population as much as safely possible. Um, and so those people who were left behind were people who had high bails or were waiting trial for capital uh, uh, cases. Uh, so, so that becomes the population that, that was left behind during COVID and continues to be until those cases are resolved. So there are now, as I understand it, between, what, 100 and 120 persons who are actually detained. Some, about 60 of them approximately, are detained because they can't make bail. Correct. And the rest are either serving time or are recent arrestees yes. or, or are in this pre-, or, pre- or they, they may be in, a pre-release, yes, in our pre-release. pre-release program, which is the Bridge to the Future program. Uh, there's another program that we, uh, we established during COVID uh, is with the... Uh, uh, parolees, because uh, there was a problem in the community with getting people out uh, from their parole status to safe housing, and so we established a safe housing program for parolees as well. Uh, Sheriff Kelly, I, I want to ask you the uh, same question that I asked your, your two opponents, um, and I asked them something that I, I assumed was actually an easy question, but apparently uh, is is contested. Uh, and it seemed to me, because of the reputation of the jail among defense attorneys, um, I asked them, uh, is the Hampshire County Jail safe? Is it safe for uh, persons who are detained there? Is it safe for staff? And uh, uh, th- there's some contest about that. Is Hampshire County sta- safe? And is the jail safe? Is the House of Corrections safe? And uh, one of the your opponents said, well, it, it, it is not as safe now as it was a year or 18 months ago. And I would appreciate your perspective. Uh, is this a safe jail and house correction? And how do we measure safety? How do we know whether it's safe or not? The, uh, the measure of safety uh, would be to look at uh, situations across the Commonwealth or even across the country. Uh, if, you, if you look at uh, facilities across uh, our state, Everybody has had an increase in uh, violent behavior, I guess is probably the best way to put it, but uh, assaultive behavior towards uh, fellow inmates and, and staff. That's, that's happening. Um, 
how we how we work to combat that and and uh, why Hampshire is a, is safer than probably most is because uh, especially on the pretrial uh, operations where there's a lot of uncertainty with that in inmate population, we have smaller housing units, and so therefore uh, we we decrease the the level of uh, assaultive behavior by keeping people in smaller units. Some of the units are uh, 12 people living in individual cells, but having an open day room. Uh, so um, in most facilities that are designed today, they're designed with anything from uh, 72, 72 individuals in a housing unit up to, in some cases, 120. And in the Hampshire County Jail and House of Correction, the units are 12? We have 12-person units, and we have a 36-person uh, unit. And then uh, for our sentence population, which is uh, our treatment units, uh, it is uh, basically four-man rooms and, and eight-man rooms, but um, they are already classified into a situation where we can uh, figure out their safety levels. I'm sure if you say four-man and eight-man uh, rooms... In fact, all of the detainees at the Hampshire County Jail, and all jails for that matter, are men. In, in our facility, it is all men, okay. yes. Uh, and that's true for uh, jails and houses of correction across the Commonwealth? Most, most facilities, uh, they're, um, uh, Franklin uh, does house uh, some uh, women. Uh, we have, in Western Mass, we have uh, the Chicopee Women's Facility, which was designed to... Uh, keep women in in one uh, place in Western Mass so that they could receive uh, women-specific treatment programs. Uh, back to my question about safety. Um, uh, has it, So has there been an, an increase in uh, assaultive behavior in the last uh, tw 12 or 18 months uh, in, in, in your facility? Uh, is this typical, or are you saying it is typical or representative of what's happening across the Commonwealth and the country? It is representative of, of what's happening uh, because the individuals that are that are left in the system at this point in time uh, have a higher propensity to uh, having mental health issues, substance abuse issues, uh, anger management issues. Uh, the people that were uh, were held by uh, the criminal justice system during, especially during COVID, uh, were collectively that that those individuals. And so it's working with, with that group uh, to try to get them to a better place is what we're trying to do. Have you had to take any specific action with regard to uh, uh, de dealing with uh, a population, a much smaller population, but a population that seems to have more uh, mental health and other issues that result in assaultive behavior? Yes. Uh, one of the things that I've done is uh, I brought in um, a psychologist to work with our treatment staff first to uh, get a better handle on mental health issues. Even though they have backgrounds in mental health training, I wanted somebody specific to come in and, and work collaboratively with them on giving them uh, more specific guidelines on, on how to work with this population. And the goal is, is uh, in the fall uh, to move that to the next level with uh, officers and supervisors to, to get them involved in uh, a more conducive uh, mental health program. Uh, Sheriff Kelly, uh, 
I have a lot more to ask you, but I want to, uh, before we take our break, I do want to get to the political question. You have two candidates uh, running against you in the Democratic primary. The Democratic primary will, as a practical matter, I believe, decide who will be the sheriff for the next six years. I don't know. I think there is a Republican. Is there a Republican? Uh, there isn't as of this point. So the Democratic primary is most in all likelihood will decide uh, the race. Um, uh, both candidates used to work for the Hampshire County Jail. Um, I uh, used to work for you, and I'm wondering what you, uh, what your response is to that to former employees uh, running against you. What do you make of that? Well, I, I guess uh, everybody has a right to run. That's that's the democratic process, and uh, they they have a different feeling of the direction of travel uh, that the facility should go. I I'm assuming uh, than I do. Uh, I believe that uh, we have to uh, continue to move uh, corrections uh, based on based on legislative mandates. Uh, we we are at a point where uh, a reduction in correctional facilities means we have to do more with wraparound services in the community, and and that's uh, that has been my focus uh, uh, before COVID and and during COVID and and now uh, I don't even want to use post COVID because we're still seeing. Uh, people being infected with uh, COVID-related illnesses. So. Do you think they're – well, the criticisms uh, – one criticism was, for example, that uh, a pretrial uh, inmate couldn't receive educational services because that man could not be, uh, I guess, could not be part of the educational services that were offered to uh, uh, persons who are serving time in the House of Correction part of the facility. Uh, what's your response to that? Everybody that comes into the facility has uh, a classification process. If somebody is looking for educational services on a pretrial uh, situation, they would be classified uh, to that service. Um, and depending on what those circumstances were, and I don't know uh, what we're talking about in this set of circumstances, but uh, they would be classified as a high level of security or a medium level of security or a low level of security. And based on that, the classification committee would recommend uh, what kind of uh, a, an educational process would take place. We are speaking with Hampshire County Sheriff Pat Kelling, candidate for re-election for the Office of Sheriff. The Democratic primary is September 6th. We'll take a quick break and be right back more with the Sheriff after this. I hear the train coming. It's rolling around a bend. This is and Bill I Newman, WHMP. Did you know financially distracted employees are less productive? Hi, I'm Christopher Vialli, president of Cambridge Credit Counseling. As a Western Mass nonprofit, we can help your employees manage their debts safely and responsibly, and the partnership is free. We already proudly partner with companies like AAA and the Mass Teachers Association. So call me, Christopher, at 1-800-CAMBRIDGE, and let's talk about bringing financial peace of mind to your employees. 
Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. As the weather gets warmer, I know many of you are thinking about your summer workout schedule. And if you're like me, it's all about finding work, life, and workout balance, which is why when you sign up at Fitness Together, you'll put a schedule together with your personal trainer that actually works for you, is stress-free, and will help you stay fit, healthy, and balanced. Visit us online today at fitnesstogether.com, Amherst, or Northampton, and sign up for your free consultation. We are talking random whites. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. This is from a company called La Pere. Gros Monsang. Grow, apparently. When you see it written, it looks like you're drinking something called Gros Monsang. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's Grow. In the past, has mostly been relegated to bulk wine or distilling grapes for brandy. Petit Monsang, which I think means like little guy, and Gros Monsang means big guy. It almost has like a dessert wine feel to it. It's susceptible to botrytis, so they do make sweet wines. This tastes like it almost might have that, which is like... It's essentially, they call it Noble yeah, Rock, it, which is my next yeah. band name. So Don't grapes, steal it. We, we, so mentioned, weird. <laughs> we mentioned it was a brandy grape, and this wine does taste like a brandy. Yeah. Drink this before dinner. Maybe drink it after dinner. Because it's a brandy-ish kind of feel yeah, to it. This yeah, is a unique it's one. very different. 1899. It is organic grapes and certified organic. What's the name of this one again? La Perre. Find your favorite wine and your next favorite wine at State Street. You want to feel important. You want to be part of something bigger, something that matters and can help change things. You want to feel like you belong. We know. We felt that way too. And that's why we did something about it. We aren't just Army National Guard soldiers. We are normal people just like you. But our part-time service in the Army National Guard means we get to be more. When our communities are in need, we get the chance to stand up and do something about it. We get to serve in our own region and help the people we call neighbors. From the coasts of Maine, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New Jersey. The small communities of Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. To the dense forests of New Hampshire, Vermont, and New York, and historic Washington, D.C. We are here for our hometowns. And together, we can make a difference. Take on your legacy. Visit NationalGuard.com to find out more. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Army National Guard. Aired by the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association and this station. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Hampshire County Sheriff. He is the sheriff is the person who is responsible for uh, the administration of the Hampshire County Jail and House of Correction. And during the not break, to be confused with the warden, who is the one who threw the party in the county jail. <laughs> so that is not in the purview of the sheriff's department specifically. Monty, you asked, a, I thought, and brought up an interesting uh, topic for the sheriff during our break. Why don't you uh, repose that question? I think our listeners will be interested. Uh, remind our listeners about the number and reduction of, of inmates between what it was sort of pre-COVID and where, where it stands right now on average. Uh, on average, uh, we're down to uh, about 120 uh, individuals being held. From what from what's a usual average? The between 260 and 280. So that's the, a pretty dramatic it is, number. It is a dramatic number. And a lot of this, I'm sure, has to do with COVID specifically and wanting to not get people so in tight quarters and get yeah. them out into safety. Is this a trend, though, that you'd like to see going forward, regardless of pandemic or not, that we are not keeping as many men in this instance in in behind bars at the Hampshire County Jail? The trend had already started in Hampshire County because we had been working with uh, drug courts, We'd been working with veterans courts to to move people to 
a better situation for them to handle whatever issues that may have brought them to into the criminal justice system to begin with. So what ended up happening was is it was it was moved faster during COVID. Uh, one of the things that we did during COVID was we worked with uh, the defense bar, we worked with the district attorney's office, and uh, a core group of of our senior staff sat. We would sit and we would analyze everybody who was. Um, close to being released and or we could find a program and they were limited let's face it during covid programs that we could find uh, to put them into but we we found a way forward to reduce that population uh, because we felt that was our responsibility and that gave us an opportunity to spread individuals out inside and so i think that is a a that is going to be a continuing trend because uh, that's what uh, the public wants well, that being said, there must be pressures upon you because the way that the jail gets revenue is by taking in inmates, I'm assuming. There's no other fund way that you are funded? Is, and right. is it per per head, I guess, as it, it were? It's Yeah, which is a false narrative because um, the Hampshire County Sheriff's Department has relatively six different pieces to it. And... Uh, all those pieces have to be funded in some way, and they don't all have to do with how many inmates you you are holding. Um, the uh, civil process office is responsible for uh, documents from the court uh, and responsible for uh, putting people uh, out in situations where they're being evicted. And so we have uh, tasked case management people to work with that because we discovered that during COVID there was a serious uptick in mental health issues related to evictions. And so, and, and we've got a case manager who works specifically with the drug court. We have staff that works uh, with a couple of the drug task forces too. Uh, so th those are pieces in the outside community. They were uh, working with the, the homeless shelters, working with getting people back uh, out and getting wraparound services. That, that has become a, a more serious focus uh, during the past four years. So uh, there's no pressure to keep people behind bars at the jail financially, or is there? Uh, there can't be. You can't look at it from a financial situation. Uh, you know, people would like to look at it from a, a standpoint that you have X number of inmates and therefore your, uh, your cost should be this. Um, I know the, the Department of Education uh, gives us money based on uh, how many how many hours of services for how many people, and that's how they base their criteria. But uh, overall, when you're running a system, it's not just a a, a jail and house of corrections system. Uh, there are so many different pieces. The Massachusetts legislature passed. The governor signed actually a bill, a bail bail reform bill, uh, intended to allow more people to be released on. Uh, pre and a pretrial status. Uh, and what I'm wondering in terms of these, this dramatic uh, reduction in the number of people being held at the Hampshire County Jail, whether that's a reduction in pretrial uh, persons who are being detained, people who are involved in the criminal justice system pretrial, or whether it's a reduction in the number of people who are in the House of Correction, we call it the side of, of, the, of the institution, the House of Correction, people serving time, um, or, or both. Where, where's the reduction? What's caused it? Uh, the reduction is in uh, the people that are, uh, I, I, probably the best way to describe it would be the people who are not coming into the facility. Um, 
it's it's being moved out before court uh, or, or at the court hearing. Uh, so we're not seeing that population come in at the same rate we were seeing back before COVID, before COVID hit. This is pre. This is diversion of people who are D- in the system. Diversion on both on both pretrial and sentenced. Uh, there's a lot more diversion happening, uh, and I, I, I think Hampshire County is probably leading the way in in some of that. Uh, uh, the district attorneys uh, works well with the uh, the defense attorneys to uh, to do what is in the best interest of both the public and uh, the individual that they're that they are dealing with. Uh, should we go on a couple of other topics? Um, I, I, I'd like to ask you, there was a uh, 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 criticism, I think, it's fairly stated, of whether, whether the jail is offering uh, appropriate educational uh, uh, opportunities for people who are held, both uh, those who are involved with the criminal justice having been sentenced to uh, time and those who are held pre-trial, I, I'd appreciate knowing what the opportunities are and whether there's some requirement for education for those who are held in the jail. I guess the specific criticism was about the caning um, uh, uh, operation, uh, but there, of course, are many others. Anyway, your response to that. And what is caning? It sounds like that's That was bad. That was bad. That was bad. No, 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 no. It's not that. It's not that. It's not that. <laughs> well, let's, let's start with chair caning. Uh, and uh, the, the individual inmates who are learning how to cane chairs, not the whipping, but caning of chairs, uh, they, they have even said, that it is very therapeutic. As a ma- matter of fact, uh, one of the discussions uh, recently was with an individual who said, you know, I, I have some anger management issues. And by having to focus and work on this one specific piece and manage that all the way through to fruition, I feel uh, that it's therapeutic. As a matter of fact, uh, things like... Uh, Pickleball as a recreational piece, uh, because somebody approached me about uh, teaching the inmates pickleball, and uh, said in many ways pickleball can be therapeutic as well, and it can be healthy. Uh, so you look at those pieces, and those are only a few of the the outlying pieces. But um, we we have started this uh, landscape program that we um, we had been looking to do, but. Uh, during COVID, nobody nobody wanted to come to work for us for us to do those types of programs because there was a fear in the community. You know, now that we've established that it's safe to come back in and start to work those programs, we we're starting to do those again. And uh, but educationally, uh, the Department of Education uh, uh, has, as a matter of fact, on Friday uh, sent us a letter saying that uh, we are we are funded for next year. Um, and the expectation is that at least 50 people will be serviced during the course of that year for up to 10 hours. It's up to 10 hours a week. Um, to for, for what kind of educational opportunities? It, it can be anything from uh, GED, um, learning after you get a GED. I shouldn't say GED. It's a high set. Um, or High set, no, high school equivalency test as opposed right. to the GED. Yeah. Right. And... Uh, 
and educational programs after that that would be beneficial to uh, them moving into some other program. Uh, we're, we're, uh, before COVID hit, or it w the, a program that was shut down was um, a, a CNC router program that we were running as a manufacturing program with uh, GCC, and, and that's going to be hopefully reestablished in the fall. As, as as another training program because there's a lot of manufacturing uh small manufacturing companies out here that are very interested in hiring our people and uh the same with uh uh landscape the landscape architecture program we've already got inquiries from from people who would be very interested in having somebody who has a certificate or is trained uh in uh, in those types of skills sheriff i want to give you the same opportunity i gave uh, our uh uh, other your your opponents here. Uh, uh, I know you were uh, been involved in uh, the Hampshire County Jail for a long, long time. But I would like you to take a minute, if you would, and uh, give us your give us your campaign pitch for real reelection. Well, I think probably the campaign pitch would be uh, we want to continue to move corrections into the community. Um, we want to keep that those individuals as engaged in the community as we possibly can from a safety of the community and a safety of the individual standpoint. And we want to reestablish uh, our connections with the, uh, the employers that we have worked with uh, diligently over the last, uh, my whole term. And, um, and we want to continue our medication-assisted treatment program. Uh, we, we've got a, a solid grant uh, application out now that uh, looks like it, it may come to fruition in, in the next uh, two to three months and that will that will give more wraparound services in the community for medication assisted treatment and mental health treatment it's a SAMHSA, it's a SAMHSA grant that uh, we've been working on since the spring and and those are the things it is my goal is to work collaboratively with what the legislature has dictated that we should be doing and continue to move corrections in a manner that is consistent with what uh, the citizens of Hampshire County want. We've been speaking with Sheriff Pat Kaling, candidate for re-election in the Democratic primary is September 6th. Thanks for being with us today, Sheriff. We really appreciate it and expect you'll be back with us during the rest of this campaign. Okay. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Greenfield man who fired shots at Energy Park last week is being held without bail. 19-year-old Gabe Adams was arraigned yesterday in a dangerousness hearing after being arrested last Thursday. The judge ruled Adams would be held without bail in a pretrial detention for at least 120 days, as allowing him to return home would present a danger to the community. Adams' next court appearance is set for August 19th in Greenfield District Court. President Joe Biden will travel to Massachusetts today to promote new efforts to combat climate change. However, the White House says the president will not declare an emergency that would unlock federal resources to deal with the issue, despite increasing pressure from climate activists and Democratic lawmakers. The White House says it has not ruled out issuing such a declaration later, which would allow the president to reroute funds to climate efforts without congressional approval. 
Today, Biden will announce other new climate actions when he visits a former coal-fired power plant in Somerset that shuttered in 2017, but has since been reborn as a wind power facility. Over 100 people came out to mourn Winston, a comfort dog who was part of the Amherst Police Department. Law enforcement officers showed up with their canines to pay tribute as well. The memorial service was held on the grounds of the Inn on Boltwood yesterday to honor the English Labrador Retriever that became a part of the force in September of 2020. Winston was put down after being diagnosed with lymphoma. Partly to mostly sunny, hot and humid today, a high of 92 to 96. The humidity will make it feel like it's close to 100 this afternoon. Variable clouds tonight, warm, muggy, 68 to 74. Hot one again tomorrow, sun cloud mix. Watch out for showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon, a high in the low 90s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El alcalde de Holyoke, Joshua García, envió un comunicado público el martes recordando a los residentes de la ciudad que es de todos la responsabilidad compartida de mantener la ciudad limpia, no solo porque así lo exigen las leyes de la ciudad, sino porque es lo correcto para los demás y para el medio ambiente. Eso significa asegurarse de que las áreas que ocupa o posee estén libres de basura, escombros y crecimiento excesivo de vegetación, incluso en áreas comunes como aceras adyacentes, franjas de césped, derechos de paso hasta el borde de la superficie de la vía de circulación vehicular de cualquier calle pública y la mitad del callejón. García señaló que los callejones no son propiedad ni están mantenidos por la ciudad y son responsabilidad de los propietarios. De igual forma, si ocupa o posee un espacio junto a una rejilla de alcantarillado, hay que asegurarse de que esté libre y despejada de basura y escombros para que las aguas pluviales puedan fluir correctamente y evitar inundaciones. En su comunicado, el alcalde compartió la ordenanza de la ciudad que requiere que los propietarios mantengan sus áreas limpias, agregando que la ciudad está fortaleciendo sus departamentos para prepararse para la aplicación adecuada, lo que incluirá multas para cualquier persona que no mantenga sus áreas. En otras informaciones, los trabajos de pavimentación y asfaltado en el área sur de Holyoke continúan este miércoles, según informó el martes un comunicado del alcalde Joshua García. Este miércoles la pavimentación será en Sargent Street desde South Canal hasta Main Street. Las calles Clemente y Southeast desde Sargent hasta Cabot Street y Southeast desde Sargent hasta Crescent Street. El trabajo comienza a las 6.30 de la mañana y continuará durante todo el día. Estas calles estarán cerradas al tránsito vehicular y se prohibirá el estacionamiento en las mismas. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our segment, well, segments. It's a bit of a mashup we have with us. <laughs> Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, Larry Hott. Natalia and, Muñoz. And Natalia <laughs> Muñoz. <laughs> Wait. I'll give you the Emmy, Larry. You can have my Emmy. There's a mashup of the music, too. <laughs> there's music in there. <laughs> there we go. Larry Hott. Thank you. Good morning. Talk to us. Good morning. Yes. Well, we have a big subject today. The unraveling of an award-winning documentary is the headline from a New York Times article yesterday, a film called Sabaya, which I haven't seen, but it's about Yazidi women who have been sexually enslaved by ISIS. And the director is in real trouble. This award-winning film has been pulled. Here's the, he the headline, uh, or the first paragraph. In a pivotal scene of a 2021 documentary, Sabaya, 
Two men rescue a young woman named Layla from a Syrian detention camp for the families of ISIS fighters, bundling her into a car and driving her to safety as shots are fired behind them. Sounds dramatic, and it's that scene that won this film all these awards. Turns out it didn't happen. They used footage from some other scene. They manipulated the sound, and the director admitted that he was not there when Layla was freed, that he substituted another woman instead, and that he lied to a BBC interviewer. Oh, the shame, the horror. Well, <laughs> I read this and I flashed back. I had a flashback on two other films that got in trouble, big ones. In 1993, there was an Oscar-nominated film called The Liberators, and it was about black troops in the United States liberating a Nazi concentration camp and interviews with the soldiers about what it was like. Turns out that never happened. And the filmmakers manipulated the footage and the film to make it appear that there was this dramatic moment. This, the revelation that this was not true came out after the film had been broadcast on American Experience and after it had been nominated for an Oscar for Best Feature Documentary. And the filmmakers, oh, they really suffered. One of them, I know, never made another film. The other one, I had spent about 10 years ignominiously. Is that, is that a word? Ignominiously. Ignominiously hiding until coming out. Um, lost a lot of money, a lot of prestige. It was an embarrassment for everybody. And you'd think that filmmakers okay, so would have gotten... Okay, so it never happened. You'd think filmmakers would have gotten did the message. It did not happen. Uh, black soldiers came to concentration camps after they were liberated but they made it sound as if they were the ones who came in and first saw the prisoners and that they welcomed them and that there was, this is all under the, uh, the heading of you know, black Jewish relations. And in fact, before it was found out that this didn't happen, all, lots of people were celebrating this among black and Jewish civil rights com communities because there's a long history of a black Jewish connection in the, in the civil rights movement. So it did a lot of damage to both communities and it certainly tainted filmmakers. I want to talk about one other film and I'm going to tell you why, why I'm so interested in this. In 2011 or so, no, uh, no, it was 2005, The Mighty Times, The Children's March, got the Academy Award for Best Short Documentary and it was about the Children's March in Selma, Alabama, which was a very famous civil rights event where the kids actually left their high school and went downtown to march and they were fire hosed and bitten by dogs. All that really happened. To make it more dramatic, the filmmakers reenacted these scenes and never said that they were reenactments. They did them so well. Turns out that the filmmakers in other films had, had labeled them as reenactments, actually put sprocket lines to make it look like old film, uh, made it clear that it was a reenactment, but they decided not to do it in this case. And it wasn't until after they got an Oscar for it that it was revealed that they had basically made it all up. Now, I was, I was watching this Well, they film. didn't make it all up. They reenacted re it, but they didn't tell the viewers that it was a reenactment, not the actual right. film. So there's an ethical obligation to tell people that it's a reenactment. Let's all unanimously vote yes. Yes. There, yes, there, I also agree. There, there is. Uh, the question is, do you put that in the credits or do you put it when, it when it's on there? Does it interrupt their viewer? But still, they should have let them know. And when I was watching this movie and I was seeing a teacher writing on the blackboard back turned to the class and the kids are jumping out the window to go to the march, I thought, well, who the hell had a camera <laughs> in, in the classroom? So was it obvious to me <laughs> in, in the 60s, too, when people didn't have cameras? So anyway, so why am I talking, talking about this? Well, I'm in the middle of making a film 
uh, called the Niagara Movement about the civil rights movement before the NAACP. There's very little images, very few images to show. And we've decided to create the images, to use animation. And when it is animated, and it's car not, a real car not, not supposed to look like a cartoon, but <laughs> they will be drawings, maybe rotoscoped, uh, which means they're very realistic drawings, but people will know that they are drawings. This came up um, in 2011. I did a TEDx talk, um, and I had to come up with a subject. At the time, I was making a film on the War of 1812, and we had decided to do reenactments. And people questioned us. Why? Because there weren't enough cameras in there the were War very, of 1812? There were very the few cameras. <laughs> 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 and, and one of the things, reenactments are very hard. There's a cheesiness factor, a cringe factor to doing it. So we had to really work, we worked really hard. We had a costume director. We had, uh, uh, you know, fight directors. We had, <coughs> excuse me, black powder people on, on set. Um, and it was difficult to get it. We had to shoot it uh, at a certain frame rate to, to make it look kind of cloudy because if you made it hyper-realistic, people just laughed at it because you can't, it's hard, to, it's hard to compete with Hollywood when you have a documentary budget. At the same time, this was a documentary, we were, we were using other images, paintings, for example. There's a painting of, of Oliver Perry uh, in, the, in the Battle of, 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 of Lake Erie, the famous, that's, that's never, don't give up the ship. That's where that comes from. But the painting was made in the late 19th century. The battle is in 1813. Right? And all the other images that we had had been done 100 years later. Right? But they're the iconic images. So when you show those images, are you saying to people these are contemporaneous? Right? A couple of more quick examples. Robert Capa, you might remember him, famous photographer. He did that picture in the Spanish Civil War of a soldier being killed and he's falling backwards and his gun is up in the air, he's wearing a white uniform. Well, there's a lot of suspicion that that never happened, that that was staged. Civil War photographs, cannons were moved around, cannonballs were moved around, bodies, corpses were picked up at Gettysburg and moved to make the picture better. Right? So here's why I gave a TEDx talk about this. People see archival film and they think it's true. Turns out, you can go, uh, go ahead and search, go ahead and search uh, World War II images that are faked. And you'll see famous images that you've seen over and over again that turned out to have been arranged. Planes falling out of the sky, bloating, hitting the ground, their practice runs, right? Soldiers being marched somewhere, perhaps in a death march, all staged, right? So we have this question now we think fake news is, is so new. Right? We, there's a film out now, uh, 2,000 Mules, uh, purporting to show that the election was rigged. We all, you know, us liberals believe that that was faked. There's fake news everywhere, and it goes back, of course, hundreds of years. So as a documentarian, I am faced with this all the time. Now, I'll give you one more example that's really a tough one. One more example, a really tough one. Do you use footage from a battle that is not the actual battle, it's real battle footage, but it's not the actual battle footage. Say the Battle of Guadalcanal, and you have guns firing on an island a thousand miles away, but it looks exactly the same. Do you use that? So these are the kind of ethical problems that documentary filmmakers are dealing with all the time. We're gonna take a quick break. We're gonna come back. We're gonna talk more about reality and documentary and propaganda right after this. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. 
For the first time in the history of the country and of the history of the United States, the Supreme Court has taken away a constitutional right. I would also describe this day as a day when women in the United States and people who can become pregnant have become second-class citizens. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Every day, financial ads claiming to be different from the competition. Are they? I'm Francis Rayum, the money doctor, and I'm about to make a bold statement. I believe the thing to focus on isn't their uniqueness, it's yours. No one has the same financial situation or needs as you, and no one can help us help you better than you. But the truth is, when it comes to managing money, most of us are not as successful as we'd like to be. No matter how focused we are, it's almost impossible to separate emotion, and being in a relationship can further compound the issue. That's why I developed Hug Your Money. Financial coaching coupled with online software and tools to empower you to manage money wisely. We guide you every step of the way to resolve immediate issues and plan for your financial future with modeling scenarios. So whether it's debt, budget, retirement planning, or a financial crisis, having a Hug Coach in your corner is like having a new best financial friend. Hug Your Money is as unique as you are. In fact, it's patented. Visit HugYourMoney.com. Martha Graham, Mum and Shantz, Blind Boys, Cherish the Ladies, Peking Acrobats, Ukraine Philharmonic, Nikki, and Stomp, all on their way to the UMass Fine Arts Center. Mum and Shantz in their 50th year, Cherish the Ladies, A Celtic Christmas, the Martha Graham Dance Company with the Lost Graham Masterwork Canticle for Innocent Comedians. Snarky Puppy unleashes their ferocious improvisation. Nikki shines a ray of pop sunshine. And Gina Chavez blends the sound of the Americas with tension and grace. Dance, classical, jazz, theater, plus performances you just can't categorize. Stomp arrives for three performances. Head-turning trumpeter Sean Jones leads his quartet on stage, plus visits the UMass High School Jazz Festival. Plan now for a season of uplifting arts performances. Go to the UMass Fine Arts Center website for the full calendar and tickets. What's for dinner tonight? What's on your plate is a conversation with the land, with the farmers. Local farm fresh food is all around. Get it direct from farms and farm stands, at farmers markets, at grocery stores, in local restaurants. Just look for CESA's bright yellow Local Hero label, letting you know that this is food from local farms, grown with care by friends and neighbors. Local Hero food, as fresh as it gets. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And that is Natalia Munoz's walk-up music, who is, Natalia has been with us throughout. Yeah, the, so... Go ahead, Natalia. Sorry, get back to you. <laughs> so because this is my segment, Larry, you're out. Okay. Out. I'm out of no. here. Okay. <laughs> no, I have a question for you, Larry. You spoke very... You mentioned several examples where documentaries showed scenes that were... they fake. They, uh, they weren't real. And including some that have won awards, Oscars. What can, if anything, the filmmaking industry do to for to do their due diligence so that they know that every single scene is actually either properly credited, or if they as coming from another source or being you know or being staged. Um, you know, either do, during the the scene that we're seeing at that moment, or at the end of the at the end credits, 
what can the industry do? And then also, what can we as viewers do to be a little, to, to question what we're, we're seeing? Well, the Academy, uh, the American, uh, the, um, the Oscar people did respond to this because they were so embarrassed. And they require, they require now that when people submit documentary films, they list the archives in the film and where they came from. And they have to sign a statement that they're all real. So that's one thing that, that the Academy has done. Uh, I think mm -hmm. broadcasters, too, are requiring much more, they have stricter rules. When I finish a film for PBS, for example, I have to provide them with what we call a Bible, which has every single image in it and what its source is and what we know about it. And those rules mm -hmm. were not in existence before. Uh, so part of it is uh, just some very common sense things. Uh, and part of it are rules. We, at least you're signing something to say that everything is real. And the other aspect of this is uh, we have very low media literacy in this country, partly because we don't- Can you please, Larry, Larry, my friend, can you please describe what lit uh, media literacy is? Well, for me, it's understanding how media is made, who makes it, who, mm -hmm. who writes it, what the rules are. What, what ethics are behind it. Uh, when I teach media literacy, which is part of usually a, a documentary course, it has to do not only with uh, the ethical considerations, um, but also what the copyright rules are, when you can use other people's footage, and recognizing uh, when something has been manipulated. Uh, and a ex good example is what happens when you take people off camera and th you are not lip syncing, you know, the sound is not synced. You can do anything with the, with the sound and what are the rules about that? Uh, you can well, you know, Go ahead. Since, since time immemorial, you know, from Moses with his tablets to, you know, William Randolph Hearst creating mm. uh, controversies to sell more newspapers, mm. to people making then uh, documentaries that, uh, that lie, essentially. Mm. It, all this came before social media. Now we're just seeing it a lot more with social media. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Take two tablets and call, and call me in 2,000 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why we need uh, media literacy more than ever. Uh, you know, just believing what you see on, on, on TikTok or YouTube or what you read on Twitter, uh, we, we don't have enough skepticism. Why do, you know, why do you think the, the right wing wants to eliminate uh, critical race theory from schools, right? Because the, the more that you can fool the people, the more you can you can hold power. Well, that goes them. to another point, este Larry, mm -hmm. um, is that it's, it's not only that they invent, some people invent uh, stories, some completely eliminate stories, uh, true stories. Right. Well, so, you're, you know, you just the, you use the word truth there, and that is exactly, why do you think, you know, the communists called their national newspaper Pravda, truth, right? Because mm -hmm. they want to have a monopoly on what people, what people know. And the irony of calling something that you, you absolutely control truth is, is, is obvious. Uh, so what, you, know, you can have competing documentaries and interpretations of, what's, of something happened, it, but it's important to understand what, how you're being manipulated. Um, this is what journalism school is about, right? So if you, if you gave every student a course in basic journalism, you, be, you would be, at least make inroads into teaching media literacy. Yeah, this could be media literacy. So then that could be just something that's taught in middle school or high school as part of another class, uh, history or 
a, a language class. It, do you think that that would work? It does help. It does help. If you have forced to write a newspaper article, if you make a documentary for a grade in school, and then somebody discusses with you what you did right and what you did wrong, sure, you have a better of idea of how it's done. But do you, we have many of those classes? No. You know, better school districts have more resources to do that kind of thing, and you need teachers who know how to, who know how to teach it. So, of course, it once again boils down to money. These are budgetary issues. But it's not only yeah. budgetary, right? It's that you have to believe that this is worth doing. Yeah. So, Bill, you're a lawyer. Bill, uh -oh, uh oh, questions that start like that never, end, never end well. <laughs> Larry's a recovering studio. lawyer. <laughs> Ask him that question. Uh, I know we only have a few seconds left. Is, is there anything that, anything legal? Are there any laws in place? It's just all, you know, First Amendment free speech. Yeah, and it's, it's, fine. A, it's a really complicated question. And I think it's a really important question, which is, is there absolutely nothing that can be done to uh, somehow offset lies and propaganda? I mean, there has to be. And I actually really would like to continue this conversation. Right, because with you the laws about libel and defamation are under attack, uh, making it, making it uh, easier to sue people. And that's, that's, it goes against our Constitution. We're going to continue this conversation next week. Natalia Munoz, Larry Hott, thank you both so very much. Thank you all. Where are you, Natalia? Oh, is this Millie? Is this Millie Vanilli? Yes, it is. You're still live on the radio. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> little Easter oh, yeah. egg, little Easter egg for you all. <laughs> Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday local burgers and fries? Correct. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates, and you save 30%. Local burgers and fries on the corner in Northampton on the main Dragon Keen, plus local burgie, burgers and barbecue in Williamsburg. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton radio group station. It's 10.